Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. While both sides want a deal, we have to face up to the fact that, despite the progress we have made, there are two big issues where we remain a long way apart. And I have always said, no deal is better than a bad deal. But I have also been clear that the best outcome is for the UK to leave with a deal. As I told EU leaders, neither side should demand the unacceptable of the other throughout this process. I have treated the EU with nothing but respect. The UK expects the same. A good relationship at the end of this process depends on it. When the history books are written about Britain in the early 21st century, this will be the period where the raw soul of the country will be remarked upon. We've always been able to hide behind a Whiggish view of history, us Brits, that progress was inevitable and that we were an ordered people. Well, Brexit has put a lie to that fallacy. We can be as rancorous as Italians in our political sphere and we harbour extreme right-wingers within our political discourse. And we also have many politicians that just won't tell people the truth, who are afraid to be honest and to look us Brits square in the eye and tell us that we've made a mistake and to be honest about the economic catastrophe that is Brexit. What we really need right now is for our Prime Minister to sit down with us without a lectern, maybe with a roaring log bar behind her and have a cosy chat. You know, one of those chats which used to happen frequently in the 1970s, you'd have a, there'd be a special announcement from the Prime Minister to explain the mess economically, politically, geopolitically that this country is about to embark on. We harbour many people in this country who don't appreciate the difference between fuzzy nostalgia and dangerous economic nationalism and all the things that that entails. 
I call upon all Brits to engage with each other, not in a rancorous way, because that's not the way I do things on, on this podcast, but to try and to urge our politicians to give us um, a second vote on Brexit, on the deal of whatever is going to be on the table before March 29. And if we vote to leave again, we end all debate and we walk together off the white cliffs of security together and drown in a sea of trade tariffs, rising unemployment and a shrinking pound as one people. If we make that decision again to leave the European Union, we have to do it together. Now this show took a little bit of a left turn. It's rather long. I speak to William Campbell, who has got a great perspective on Brexit from the view of being Irish and a European. Now, the whole point of this show is really to look at the Irish perspective on on Brexit, because obviously Britain deciding to Brexit has a massive impact on one European country, and that is, of course, Ireland. And I really wanted to drill into the issue of the Irish border, but we somewhat veered off into the weeds, though we came personally close to discussing all the intricacies of the Irish border problem, and we went off looking at why Brexit makes little sense economically and the practicalities of manufacturing and industry and how Brexit is nonsensical from that view. I still think the show is of great value. William obviously knows of what he speaks, which is the European Union and how it works. And uh, we do, towards the end, uh, come at things from a somewhat different perspective in terms of trying to understand where the rise of UKIP kind of really started in the UK and um, what are the potential outcomes in the next few months for British and European politics. So it does start with William giving us a somewhat detailed, a really detailed and excellently detailed understanding of the Irish perspective on its relationship with Britain and Europe. And then we have a little bit more of a conversation. I hope you enjoy this show. There will be a lot of Mid-Atlantics this week. Um, we've got another one to come. I interviewed David Shields, who's got a new book out about Donald Trump, which will come out on Friday. You had a Mid-Atlantic yesterday. Um, it's a busy time. Um, this is a pivotal time in Britain's history. And let's just hope that we don't just abrogate all of our responsibilities as citizens and leave the decisions to politicians. As citizens, as subjects, we need to be engaged and we need to make sure that this country can get through 2019 in one piece, quite literally. Here's the show. How's your podcast going? I'm good. Um, um, uh, growing slowly, but growing and uh, kind of more reactions each time. So that's kind of quite nice. Well, I must admit, I'm still smarting from the, the mauling you gave me whilst I was on your show oh, in, in April. So <laughs> I thought we we're going to go on there, have a nice little chat. I was going to talk about American exceptionalism to do with culture and sport. Mauling, that's way overstated. Yeah, no, yeah. You, you were so affable and nice off mic. And all of a sudden, <laughs> when you when you switched on, you turned into a different character. I was like, oh, my God. Uh, it's a... <laughs> <laughs> but uh but no no uh, more power to you sir 
Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where normally we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other, but today is somewhat different. I am Royfield Brown, who's in a, a rather sunny, lovely Bay Area in my beloved California. Today, I'm joined by William Campbell of Challenging Opinions. Now, you might remember, folks, that I did mention this some months ago, but I went onto his podcast to talk about America, a country which I'm very much kind of in love with and in awe with in equal measure. And he beat me up good and proper. So um, <laughs> we're going to return the pleasure this time. No, no, that's not the way we do things over here. Uh, but William, it's lovely uh, to speak to you again. Thank you very much. Uh, I thought we'd have you on to talk about the Irish opinion of Brexit, the thing which has consumed British politics like nothing in peacetime since the Second mm -hmm. World War. And it's even more pressing that we talk about this after yesterday's mauling of the British Prime Minister Theresa May in Salzburg. First off, quite simply, how has the body politic in Ireland reacted in the last two plus years to Britain deciding to Brexit? Um, the one thing that I heard a comment, it's not an original comment from me, but I, when I heard it, I realised it was very true. When Irish politicians speak to and about British politicians, you can be pretty sure that the more polite they get, the more angry they are. And at the moment, they're being very, very polite <laughs> indeed. And I, I should say, maybe for your American listeners who, whose geography of European countries isn't all that good, Ireland is perhaps one fifteenth of the size of the UK. So it's very much a smaller country. And of course, Northern Ireland, which is just about a fifth of the island of Ireland is part of the UK. And it's part of the UK because when Ireland, when the main part of Ireland became independent, the population in the north, in this northeastern area, were much more identifying themselves as British, not all of the population, but a majority of the population. And for that reason, Northern Ireland did not become a part of an independent Ireland. That caused a lot of strife. There was a very large Irish nationalist, usually Roman Catholic uh, minority in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, who were maybe 40% or more of the population. And throughout the 20th century, certainly up to the 1960s and 1970s, there was a situation that was not unlike apartheid South Africa for many Catholic nationalist people in Northern Ireland. If you were a nationalist, if you were a Catholic, you wouldn't be allowed to go to university. You certainly wouldn't be able to get a job in any prestigious profession, like be a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that. You, you probably suffered a drastically higher unemployment rate for that reason. It was virtually impossible. That began to change when the British government essentially kicked out the independent Northern Ireland government that was a Protestant-only government. It was elected just on the basis that its uh, representatives were Protestant. And gradually there was some improvement during the 1970s and 1980s. The real improvement came in uh, the 1990s because it, from the 17, on, 70s onwards, there was a civil rights movement the, um, and it was met with, with uh, an equal amount of resistance as the civil rights movement in, in the US. A terrorist campaign started essentially out of the failure of the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland and uh, with uh, Irish nationalists fighting to, to create a united Ireland, that's to say have the whole of Ireland, including Northern Ireland, ruled under a government from Dublin. And in the late 90s, 
there was essentially a compromise reached whereby Northern Ireland would get back an independent government, but the government would have to contain all strands of opinion. So there wouldn't be a government party and an opposition party. All parties elected would have some ministers in the government and there would be safeguards against uh, discrimination and so forth. And in return, Northern Ireland was guaranteed as part of the UK, as part of the British, under the British government, for as long as the majority of people there wanted to stay that way. That was what the Unionists, what the Protestant people got, what the Nationalists, what the Irish people in Northern Ireland got, was unfettered movement. So all of the border crossings were opened. And to drive from Dublin in the south to Belfast in the north now, you just get on the motorway and you drive. And that has vastly improved the life for everybody in Ireland, north and south. And of course, there was no custom checks, no border checks, no immigration, no passport or anything. So anybody who was Irish, who was Catholic, who was a nationalist and lived in Northern Ireland, could live in their home in a way that felt like they were living in Ireland. And the uh, that compromise has worked more or less for 20 years. Mm. Now, you no, sort of no, go no, ahead, no, ask no, me a question no, because I'm no, monologuing. Monologue away. It's good to have this kind of background because to the heart of this issue, this present issue, which is bedeviling uh, Brexit, is unravelling uh, that Good Friday Agreement. So, you, you know, mm-hmm. monologue away, sir. Let, let, let's get the history um, of the the Southern Islands uh, relationship to Northern Ireland and to the UK um, kind of out there. Let's put that on the table. In the 1970s, as the violence really kicked in, one Irish prime minister was famous for saying, he's actually misquoted slightly, but the misquotation is probably more accurate. He's famous for saying that the South, the independent republic, would not stand idly by while uh, Catholic nationalists were attacked, were burned out of their homes and so forth uh, uh, in Northern Ireland. And that statement was entirely precisely correct if you just remove the word not from the middle of it, because that's pretty much exactly what they did up to the 1990s. And in the 1990s, the Irish government took a very active interest and essentially strong-armed the British government into making a commitment that they would not do anything to stand in the way of peace in Northern Ireland for selfish reasons. Uh, and for, um, because previously, at the, a hundred years previously, one of the reasons for the division was that the, the industrialized area in the north was the industrialized area in Ireland was the north. So the shipbuilding and the huge heavy industries were based in what was became Northern Ireland and remained in the UK. So, for example, people will be familiar, familiar with the Titanic. This was built in Belfast. Much of the British Navy was built in Belfast. And the Irish nationalists always had a suspicion that the British wanted to hang on to that for those reasons. And there was probably some truth in that, but that has certainly died now. The, that heavy industry has gone in any case. And Northern Ireland is an economic drag on the UK to to a certain extent. The uh, let me just uh, the one thing I will just uh, jump in and say I'd say to a large extent it's um, by that's actually disputed. And I'll uh, there has been some discussion in Ireland about this, but we might 
come on to it in in a moment and I'll, but but it is disputed the the extent of that but it's but, certainly but just uh, in, not an economic powerhouse that, that it was no. and britain um is incredibly lopsided economically that in terms of london and the southeast they in terms of raw gdp numbers they are by orders of magnitude, uh, much richer, much more affluent than, let's say, uh, Cornwall, Wales, Northern Ireland, etc. Mm-hmm. Peripheral Exactly, areas. exactly. And also some bits which aren't that peripheral. So there are some bits of the West Midlands and Greater Manchester, etc., and in the northeast that are below any kind of line of equilibrium in terms of Western European figures of GDP. It's it's worth noting that those are the areas that, that voted most strongly for absolutely, Brexit as well. Absolutely. Anyway, uh, go, go on, William, uh, and then 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 we'll come in and we'll try and understand uh, the Good Friday Agreement and um, its implications. Okay. So in the in the meantime, so in the early seventies, uh, um, Britain and Ireland both joined what became the EU. And by 1992 or 1993, there was the introduction of what was called the single market. So that meant that the whole of the EU for trading, for commerce, was essentially not much different to trading between California and Nevada. If you want to sell a product, you you sell it, you put it on a truck, you drive it to the place. It doesn't matter that you're crossing an international border. So those international borders from an economic point of view were wiped out, from a migration point of view were wiped out in the sense that EU citizens, if you're a citizen of one EU country, you're entitled to go and work in any of those other EU countries. And since Ireland and Britain were both those, that made the border invisible for Irish people. And that was that was essentially part of that compromise. But, uh, just as one caveat uh, I'm going to add to that is that because mm-hmm. Ireland up until, what, 1923 was a part of the United Kingdom, that Irish citizens always had a rather special status within the United Kingdom. So there was free movement of people. And if you were Irish, an Irish citizen, you could come, move to the UK, and you didn't need a visa. That's or anything. true. That's called the com- that's called the common travel area. And since independence, Irish people uniquely have essentially the right to move and uh, freely and, between the UK, take up employment, and, and, and vote. vote. Exactly, and, and vote. Uh, yes, and and those those are reciprocal. Yes, by a wide margin, the largest number of country that supplies the largest number of immigrants into Ireland is Britain. And uh, I'm not sure if that works exactly vice versa, but it's certainly um, Irish and Britain it are an enormous. Yeah, it definitely um, used to be the case. If it, if it still isn't that growing up mm. anecdotally everybody had irish neighbors in in the uk you know it was um, yeah yeah and essentially then came brexit and the amount of clearly brexit uh, the referendum two and a half years ago at this stage was something that was hugely debated if not in great detail in britain but one topic that was received exactly this zero coverage was what this would do in ireland and nobody uh, in the uk really paid much attention and in fact, when the people of Northern Ireland voted that, and the people of Northern Ireland make up probably less than 1% of the population of the whole of the UK. So it's, they're not going to swing it, but they voted quite strongly against Brexit. The narrative in the UK, not unlike the Trump narrative, was that we have to strengthen our borders. And there was a reaction against free movement of people in particular, and a misunderstanding because, of course, the European free movement of people applies to European citizens. So German citizens, French citizens can come and go up to 
for the next few months to Britain and uh, continuing for every other EU country. Third country citizens, that doesn't apply to. And the each European country is self-governing in the way that it controls third country immigration. Mm. So, for example, Britain has a lot of immigrants from the Indian subcontinent, from some African and uh, some Caribbean former colonies, and they typically have a preferential regime to come to Britain. Well, France has a lot of immigrants not, not from its, more, its, but its yeah, historically not to, not yeah. so much historically yeah. have had. But those people that is a, a decision made internally in Britain. It's not something mm. that can be. And, and you're, you're, you're absolutely right that that nuanced bit of the actual mechanics of how immigration works in the UK was completely and utterly lost and still is because you hear mm. um, many Brexiteers say, Jacob Rees-Mogg saw an interview with him about a month ago and he very clearly said, when we get out of the European Union, then we can set up our own reciprocal deals with India to get Indian doctors to come over. We've always been able mm -hmm. to do that. Perhaps for the American listeners, the EU works by what's called competencies. And that's maybe a little bit analogous to states' rights in the US. So competencies basically means in some areas, the EU has a competency. That's to say it's allowed to make decisions at an EU level. In other areas, it doesn't have a competency. That means that the national governments, each of the 20, 28, soon to be 27 countries in the EU make their own decisions and they don't have any input from Britain on that. And I think you can see one of the uh, ways where the British, certainly the Brexiteers, possibly also the British government failed to understand this. So intra-EU migration, so that's to say from one EU to country to another, is governed by the EU and there is freedom of movement. Third country immigration, so from India to the UK, from Morocco to France, for example, Morocco is a former French colony, those are controlled by the individual European countries. The One of the first things that the Brexiteers said, well, we have lots of European nationals living and working in Britain. But we also have lots of British nationals living and sometimes working in uh, on the continent of Europe and the other European countries, although in many cases uh, the British people on the continent are living in Spain and retired, so they're not working and not contributing to the economy, but that's that's okay, they're allowed to do that. And uh, I spoke particularly to Peter Lilly and his take was that, well, we should be generous, we should allow all the European citizens, not allow any new ones in, but allow the ones that are currently there to stay. And we should ask the EU to make sure that all British citizens in the EU will be allowed to stay in those countries. The EU simply doesn't have that competency. Once Britain leaves the EU, then Britain is a third country. And each of those individual countries make a deal with Britain or don't in order to allow those uh, people to stay on whatever basis. All right, um, William, all right, I'm going to stop you yes. because you are doing a masterful job. You're doing my job on my show in terms of giving a very thought out and considered background to where we are. Let's just quickly summarise and then I want to move on and ask you about the, the feeling on the ground in Ireland mm -hmm. as, as an Irish citizen and then also as a European, as somebody who believes in the European Union. So at the heart of Britain's 
current confusion, mess, mauling at the hands of the EU, which happened just yesterday, uh, very much at the heart of it is the customs union. And then Mm -hmm. a large part of that issue is to do with the fact that everyone forgot during that Brexit debate that we had a hard border with another European country, Ireland. And in part, we forgot this because it's not that we always forget Ireland, but we have a very different relationship with Ireland historically than we have with any other European country for reasons of colonialism, but also I think a lot of British people would say is that they don't really see Ireland as a foreign country in the way that they see France. And that is um, and, th- and that is very much because we have a positive feeling towards Southern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland. So culturally, mm-hmm. with, it, with almost within the British DNA, yes, Ireland is a, se- a, se- a separate polity, but it, it doesn't feel as foreign as Norway, as Portugal, etc. And that has been recognised in terms of, um, as you as you said in, in your intro there, that Irish citizens, uh, since the, the founding of the Republic, have had the right to come and live in the UK uh, without any restriction and to work and to vote immediately and stuff. So we have mm-hmm. a very yes. different uh, relationship with Ireland. I think, though, that perhaps underplays the degree to which Ireland is a different country. Mm. And um, there's a a typical thing that happened that Irish people tend to roll their eyes at and and, uh, British people come on holiday or whatever and they say, oh, and you have uh, a different uh, license plate uh, numbering system for your cars, meaning different to the UK. And of course, and kind of this sort of surprise that Ireland isn't quite like the home counties of England. Mm. And I think maybe a little bit like the UK understands the US quite well because they watch all their TV and that doesn't necessarily work the other way around. I think that's that situation is similar with Britain and, and Ireland. Absolutely. Just to, to, again, to give people a bit of background, the border, and so Ireland is a very small country. It's, it's the size of, you know, a very small New England state. It's not a large place. But the border between the North and the Republic is 500 kilometers long. There are 200 crossing points. The border was drawn essentially at random in several places, it goes down a river with the effect that when you have a village on a river, you have half the village on one side of the border, half the village on the other side of the border. Oftentimes, it goes down a street, which means that when people are in their house, they're on one side of the border. When they go out their front door, they're on the other side of the border. And in some, and, and in many, many cases, in a huge number of cases, uh, people have farms which go across the border. And in some cases, people have a house whereby the bathroom and the kitchen is in one side and the bedroom and the living room are on the other side of the border. So this is not something like, you know, the Mexico-US border uh, that has a high level of infrastructure you know, as you come hundreds of meters uh, away from uh, away from the border, and in particular, UK has two years after the referendum is only struggling towards the negotiating position of being able to say what they actually want as a new setup, as a new arrangement. If they don't want to be highly integrated into the EU and have free movement of people and goods and services and so forth. They haven't really articulated very clearly what it is they want. But one thing that the I think the Irish did in terms of 
diplomacy very cleverly right at the beginning. The EU had a meeting, uh, the, minus the UK, the EU 27. Ireland came uh, to this and uh, had done some lobbying in the background, said how important this is to them. And the EU basically drew one red line and they said, no agreement unless the uh, Good Friday Agreement, this peace agreement in Northern Ireland, which means that people can travel and go about their business and not be interfered with as they cross the border. No agreement that doesn't withhold that. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Will problems with the Irish border stop Brexit? On the way to Brexit, the biggest roadblock we face, the Irish border. That's it. We've just crossed the border. Ireland to Northern Ireland. No markings, just the signs change. Today, it's almost invisible. A century ago, the division of Ireland, partition and the building of customs posts led to years of troubles. Those ended after the Good Friday Agreement brought peace. The fear is reimposing border checks would risk new violence and be hugely complicated. So Theresa May and the EU have promised to guarantee there'll be no border under any circumstances. Mrs May says she wants no new customs or other checks here. They wouldn't be needed if the UK quits the EU but stays in its single market and customs union. But Mrs May says leaving those two is a red line for her. It wouldn't be delivering on Brexit. 
The border is this stream here. The Renahans have farmed here for six generations. Their fields stretch both sides of the border. Between the Republic of Ireland and the UK, United Kingdom. These are both your fields. These are both my fields. Ireland will have the UK's only land border with the EU and a busy one. 30% of milk from the north goes south to be processed. 50% of lamb does too. And from the south comes 25% of beef used in the north. The EU's proposal is that if any checks are needed, they won't happen along the line between Northern Ireland and Ireland, but between it and the UK. Northern Ireland staying under most of the EU's single market and customs rules. But for Theresa May and Northern Ireland's Democratic Unionists who support her in Parliament, any new border within the UK is unacceptable. However, the UK government has not put forward any alternative legal text to the EU's version. That's the only one in the negotiations. Mrs May hopes a future trade deal built around the Chequers' plan will make border checks unnecessary. But the EU wants a border guarantee now. Without one, it won't agree an exit treaty. Without that, the UK faces a no-deal Brexit. This is the final point of our journey, the port of Warren Point. We're in Northern Ireland. The Republic's just over the water there. And this handles a little more than 10% of Northern Ireland's trade. Some believe technology can erase the borders. But both the EU and the UK say it can't remove the need for checks. So the dilemma, is there any border solution acceptable to the EU, UK, unionists and other Brexiteers? Alike? The UK said they want to strengthen their borders. They have made this tentative agreement saying well, that... You, you, that you, know, you know what, I'll, I'll, another point of slight clarification, because you, you're absolutely spot on the money, that we've gone into this two plus years after voting to Brexit without any hard and fast plans in place. And that is in large part because nobody actually thought we were going to Brexit. And mm -hmm. then what we've been doing for the last two and a half years is arguing about what type of Brexit, because it's not just as simple as saying you're going to leave the European Union, because there are countries who are associated, have some kind of associated status to the EU. So those would be mm -hmm. notably Norway, Iceland and Switzerland. There are other countries that have uh, other kind of uh, statuses as well. But specifically, those three countries are not within the European Union, but have free movement of citizens. So if you're Icelandic, yes. you can just go and live in Romania if you want, etc. And Icelandic uh, trading laws. Well, first of all, it's, it's worth saying, that, Royfield, that these are very small countries. Yes. Iceland has a population of less than half a million. Yeah. Norway and Switzerland. Norway is going to be about three, three million. million. Yeah, million. yeah. And Switzerland is pretty small as well. You're, you're absolutely right. But you, you put them all together, you have, you've got uh, uh, a population very significantly less than London. Yeah. Um, the, but these countries uh, are what's in called inside what's called the EEA, the European Economic Area, and they are that that's essentially a step down version of the EU. Mm. They don't send politicians to Brussels to the EU headquarters in Brussels, um, but they get a fax or maybe it's an email these days uh, telling them what the various decisions have been made there in theory they have the sovereign right William, not I, I to think, implement I, I think, them but I think, they, I think they, they probably get an email anyway. now not a fax
But anyway, I'm well. I'm in Germany at the moment, and I, uh, I I've never seen so many faxes uh, in this century. But, <laughs> uh, uh, but the um, uh, the point being that in return for essentially accepting the rules of the game, even though they don't have a real input into them, they get free movement of people and their products. They can sell their products without any uh, tariffs yeah. into the EU. Their people can go and travel freely and work around the EU. And that arrangement suits them. The UK has been very, very, very clear, despite the fact that people like, uh, you know, very strong proponents of Brexit, people like Nigel Farage and Daniel Hannan said in, during the referendum that, well, hey, look, Norway is outside the EU, Switzerland is outside the EU, but they do fine. They have, since the referendum, been very clear that they're not willing to accept the terms that the EU gives to other countries who are uh, who are part of this EEA. So, for example, they want not to. So, this is market. This is a financial uh, a marketplace thing. It's economic pr primarily. So, for example, there are uh, standards for goods, and if you're making a car, the seatbelt anchor has to meet a particular standard, and there are many thousands of these. These are set at EU level and there's one standard across the EU and that means that everybody can trade and all the products are made to the same standard. The British have said that this is an unwarranted interference in their independence and they're not going to accept it. And that's fine. That's, you know, they're entitled to do that. But that then means they can't export those goods without any type of check, without any type of control as to whether they meet the quality standards or the cars meet the roadworthiness standard and so forth. The UK has not been able to really articulate clearly whether they're willing to accept those standards. And there's been very muddled statements from uh, Theresa May and from her cabinet saying that, well, we won't accept your right to tell us what the rules will be, but if you tell us what the rules are, we'll, we'll do we'll them do voluntarily. Them. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's really not clear uh, what they're, what they're doing. And, and I, I think a, a lot of people, uh, one of the tropes that gets repeated a lot is German car manufacturers and supposedly the German car manufacturing unions who have about a million members in Germany and are a strong political lobby. The pro-Brexit people in the UK have been saying that, of course, those unions will put pressure on their government to allow free trade, even if we don't follow the EU rules. Those unions have not been, they've been very uh, clear that they're not supporting the UK Brexiteers. But the problem with that is that a car, be it a Volkswagen, which is a German company, or a Renault, which is a French company, or, or a, a British-made car, a Ford perhaps, in fact, there is no car that's made anywhere anymore. Mm. All cars are made everywhere. And most motor companies, Wait. they assemble the vehicle, they put it together, they do the designs and so forth, but, but, but they William, outsource. That yeah. goes to the point of the fallacy of Brexit because you have a whole load of people who still believe 
um, that the world that we're living in is the world of the 1950s, where mm-hmm. there is an independent British car industry, even if Honda makes cars up in Sunderland, as it does, and mm-hmm. uh, BMW has a plant in Cowley in Oxford, uh, as, as it does. But they think that all of those bits of that car are assembled there, and they have this economic nationalist view of things that Britain kind of can stand alone because we we make things in Britain and we export them and yeah we, we buy some stuff in but they don't understand the supply chain as you've just said so that is the reason why this week we've had Jaguar, Jaguar Land Rover probably the largest independent British uh, car manufacturer say hold on a minute Right. Um, I forget which bits of uh, the car are made uh, in Europe. It, it's immaterial, really. But the widgets, the wheels, the exhaust pipes, whatever, that actually we can make a car, let's say, in 48 hours. But X amount of percent of it are actually uh, fabricated in continental Europe. If we do not know what the rules are at the border, whether it is hard, soft, squidgy, um, spongy Brexit, just whatever, right? This has a massive implication on our supply chain. Not has, Rayfield, has already had. The the product cycle for a car is probably something like 15 years that you've got maybe five or six years developing that car mm. and then you, you've got... Uh, at least a decade of selling that, and then you do that. Those manufacturers who are now developing the vehicles that will be on our roads in 10 and 15 years' time, or who have been developing them over the past few years, I know for a fact that one thing they're doing is saying that no matter what, we will not source from the UK. Now, that's not showing up in economic figures yet because those cars aren't being built and probably won't be built for another couple of years. But every continental manufacturer is doing everything they can for the models they are currently building to see and if they can get alternative suppliers, but they might just hold their nose and put up with higher costs and delays and so forth for a year or two afterwards. But for any model where the development has already begun, they're making absolutely certain that they're not sourcing anything from Britain. That damage is baked in. There's no way that that can be uh, reversed. If Brexit were to be reversed, which I think is a very implausible eventuality, then they would probably cease that. But for this product development cycle, that's the case. And you can see why, because there are products, and I think The Guardian featured one, where a single component crossed the British Channel from Britain to France or the Netherlands and Germany five times in its manufacture. Now, the Brexiteers are saying that they will be able to have some sort of magic IT system that will mean that the delays at the border ports will be kept to a minimum. But if you think of, and you mentioned Honda in Sunderland, they move 200,000 parts into Britain for every hour that they operate. And the, um, the, there has been some speed talk in the UK of uh, 
stockpiling some goods in warehouses in case there are interruptions in supplies. And the NHS, the British Health System, has been ordered to st- to stockpile some drugs, uh, I think uh, some months' uh, worth of supply of drugs in warehouses. And this really shows the 1950s thinking. The warehouses don't exist. There's a reason why there's been all those fancy apartment developments in converted warehouses. It's because industry doesn't use warehouses anymore. They use what's called just-in-time, J-I-T, just-in-time manufacturing. Basically means that if you're a supplier supplying, say, Ford in Britain or Mercedes in Germany or Renault in France, then what those big companies will tell their suppliers to do is they'll say, we want that shipment, that truckload of gearboxes or whatever to arrive at our plant at X time on X day. We won't accept it 30 minutes late and we won't accept it 30 minutes early either because we have nowhere to put it. That a truckload of parts arrives and is immediately put on the on the assembly line and is assembled and is straight out the front door. They don't store stock. They don't store parts. They don't store stock. That's just that style of manufacturing just doesn't exist anymore. And apart from the fact that there isn't any availability of warehouses to stockpile things in the way that they imagine there is. That also shows how really just a very short delay or any amount of bureaucracy at the channel ports, at the border, essentially the border between the UK and uh, the uh, continental EU, that not only would be the inconvenience of not having the gearboxes, let us say, to build their Ford cars, but that means that you're broken and in entire and hugely complex system of every other part being delivered at the right time in order for those vehicles to be manufactured. And that's replicated across dozens and dozens of different manufacturing industries. And that's why you've had uh, Boeing, uh, as, excuse me, Airbus, uh, in, uh, in, who have a plant, uh, manufacturing plant in North Wales, saying they will leave the UK, they will not manufacture there anymore if that eventuality comes out. And looking at the politics of the UK right now, that is worryingly likely. Mm. There, um, you, you mentioned at the start, and um, some of the listeners might be up with it, that there was in the last few days a meeting in Salzburg in the Austrian city where so every uh, couple of months, all of the EU heads of state get together and they meet in one European city or another. And uh, the one thing, I think, uh, a system flaw in the British negotiating method is that, and I have to pick you up on this as well, and you talk about between Britain and Europe, and I know that's used colloquially, Mm -hmm. but there are 28 countries in the EU currently. And for everybody who's not British, it rings out like a bell that the UK are imagining that they are co-equal negotiators, that on the one side there is the UK and on the other side there is the EU, and that they have some sort of parity of uh, negotiating power and parity of uh, of status. No, no, William, and that's I, just I, not true. I'm, I'm going to stop you. I'm going to stop you because you. Yeah. I think you are right, but only to a degree. I think people 
who are Brexiteers, and I'm going to say fervent Brexiteers, not even like mm-hmm. mild ones, if there is such a such a creature exists in the UK, they they believe that they do believe that. But one of the key arguments for anyone who is sensible and just logical about this is that uh, we are going up against 27 other countries represented uh, by by one body. But the economic tectonic plates just don't make any sense. And 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 you've said a couple of things which absolutely chime with me. And I had this same conversation with my mother, which long-time listeners of this podcast will know that my mother, West Indian immigrant... Centre my recommendations. My mother, West Indian immigrant, who came to England in the early 1960s, where there were signs saying no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, if you wanted to Mm -hmm. um, try and find rented accommodation, that she voted for Brexit. And she said, and I, and she said, we'll be able to do our own thing. Right. And I said, and I used uh, the car as an example. So your example of the seatbelt is a very good one. Let's just say that there were no supply chain issues. Let's just say, Mm -hmm. and let's just say that there is this mythical Phoenix of a British car manufacturer. Okay. Would they ever change the design of the the seatbelt absolutely not because the largest markets are going to be outside of the uk so by just by economic weight of gravity whatever the eu does in terms of standards british industry is going to follow at least 95% of the time. Unless- well, th- this is what's called the California effect in the US. Absolutely. That California typically um, has higher, invent- higher environmental standards and higher product standards in quite a lot of areas. And effectively, when California introduces a standard like that, a product that is manufactured in Alabama to be sent to Mississippi will follow those California standards Mm -hmm. because it's just not worth it for the manufacturer to have two separate assembly lines, two separate uh, factories or two parallel systems, one manufacturing to the California standard and one manufacturing to a more basic standard. So then the argument is when you realize the economic reality of actually how the world works, you say, do you want to be able to have a seat around the table where at least you can influence what those standards are, or are you going to sit on the on the sidelines and then just blithely have to follow? That's essentially the point. And the uh, one academic in European affairs that I came across made the point that she would ask typically her students of the various EU countries, which is best at implementing EU directives into law. And for the American listeners, when the federal government makes law, it's the federal law. That's not quite the work in the US. Well, that's not quite the way it works in Europe. In Europe, the EU, in the areas that it has competencies, can issue a directive, which is essentially an instruction to the European member states to incorporate a certain set of rules into their own national law. Some of them are sometimes a bit recalcitrant, but generally they get there in the end. But the country that's best at it is Norway. And that's kind of ironic because Norway is not in the EU, but they are obliged in order to get the benefits of the EU, they're obliged to follow those rules. And they don't have a seat at the table when the rules are being made, but they've got to follow them anyway. 
All right. Um, I'm going to slightly move, move, move our conversation. Two things mm-hmm. quickly. Norway is not part of the EU. Um, what benefits does it get? And then secondly, uh, let, let's just deal with Norway first, because that's going to be mm-hmm. a key part. Key Brexiteers have actually says a Norway model. They've actually now said they don't want a Norway model. But within mm-hmm. that Brexit debate, before we had the referendum, Norway, Iceland, Switzerland were uh, used as examples of countries that were not part of the EU, but got on well with things. So go. T- tell me what tangible benefits other than Norwegians can go and work and study and, and, and do whatever, wherever they want throughout the, the European Union. What other tangible benefits does Norway get? Um, essentially, Norway, and Norway is quite a developed economy. It's an oil economy, but they have uh, been very careful not to become over-dependent on oil in the way that perhaps some Middle Eastern countries have. But Norway essentially gets the benefit that any of the products that are made in Norway are made compliant with EU standards. And for that reason, they can be exported with essentially no checks. There is no bureaucracy to say, will we let this product in? Will we let that product in? I remember Uh, listening to a haulier, a British haulier, um, talk mm. about the disaster that will be uh, Brexit, and definitely a Brexit with with no deal. But I thought he said that actually between Norway and Sweden, if you're travelling, if you're hauling s- some goods, there actually was some kind of check that you, you needed to make. It, don't get me wrong; it, it wasn't as, as yes, if, that, that's correct. So, so what is that? They, um, there is a tracking of the vol the, the value. Uh, of goods um and um there are car so automobiles people just humans traveling can travel on any of the border crossings between Norway and Sweden Sweden is the only country that Norway has a has a real border with uh, but for hauliers they are required to use one of a more restricted number of border crossings and because Norway has this half in half out situation they are uh, the the people who are moving goods are required to move along uh, one of a certain a limited number of border crossings and they are required to report what they are uh, what they are carrying they don't have to report it at the border but they are required to to do that reporting so they do um, their paperwork before they set out basically uh, uh, yes essentially yes um now in addition to that um and people will know in 1989 the berlin wall came down our, the EU has a long history of taking in countries, including in the 1970s, Ireland, taking in countries that are less economically de- developed and putting really a very serious amount of money into building motorway networks, into building railway systems, bridges and canals, into uh, fiber optic uh, broadband connections and so forth. And that has proven incredibly successful. So what happens is the richer countries are effectively cross-subsidizing the poorer countries. Now Ireland has become very much economically developed thanks to that EU membership. The less developed countries are the former communist countries. They are at a pace having 
motorway networks being built, having a variety of other mm. uh, developments being products. done and in infrastructure. And essentially what the EU's position is, is that the richer countries, for the richer countries, it's worth it for them to pay up and pay in more than they get out. Because once you build those motorways, it is German and French and British products that are put on trucks and driven down those and sold. And, and it expands the market and expands the economy of the EU. And certainly uh, that's that's uh, been true of, of uh, German industry. They, they have uh, essentially created a new market for themselves. Mm. The- right. I'll, I'll, I'm going to d- d- hold you to that point because mm-hmm. – I had a conversation with somebody some time ago now, um, not on this show, uh, but one of my many conversations I have really against Brexit in some bar in, in the UK some time ago. Mm-hmm. And this person said, uh, well, what has the EU ever done for us? And, mm-hmm. and I said, therein lies uh, half of the problem, that actually what the EU has done is safeguard us against war, um, economic uh, dislocation, fundamentally it's part of the post-war project that countries that trade and are integrated with each other do not actually fight each other. The very fact that we can say in Western Europe there's not been a major war for some 70 years is literally unparalleled in European history. Mm-hmm. But on a very practical level, because all politics is local, if you were in London, um, what you what you have seen in the last 15, 16 years is a wave of, well, not even just London, anywhere within the UK, a massive wave of, well, let's say massive and wave is uh, subjective. What you've seen is the appearance, the emergence of Eastern European uh, workers, undoubtedly mm-hmm. wherever you are in the UK. And I remember- seeing, Polish plumbers. Yeah, absolutely. Polish plumbers came to my flat in London and uh, ripped out my bathroom just three weeks ago. So, uh, and and I remember seeing a survey that there is no postcode within the UK that there isn't a Polish national um, living in. Doesn't matter where mm-hmm. you are, out of Hebrides, there are Poles there, right? Mm-hmm. So you can look at the EU, and though it's given us um, security, that doesn't impact on your life. What you can actually see is all these Poles, Bulgarians, Romanians are actually here, and then. The other thing in terms of infrastructure, infrastructure is not an emotive thing. And you only see that. Uh, you, you see those blue uh, European flags on bridges mm-hmm. in the periphery of Britain, not in Birmingham, not in Manchester, not in London. They could well be there, but you don't see them. And, and actually, Though this is, this wouldn't have been one of the competencies of of the EU and 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 grants, but if those blue plaques saying this bridge, or this building, or this school had been partly funded or completely funded by the European Union, Brits mm-hmm. would have a very different uh, relationship to the EU. Bridges and motorways in developed economies aren't emotional things you don't you you might travel over them day by day but you don't send your kids there to them you know Mm -hmm. if the european um grants have been given as i said for schools for colleges for things like that which which people common or garden people use all day every day 
us Brits would have a very, very, very different uh, re- relationship to to the EU. I'm not sure government. that's true. It's absolutely true. What, why don't you? I, I, well, I, let me tell you why I think it's not true. Because in you say, and you're right that um, the infrastructure development funding for, of the EU is uh, obviously goes to the poorer areas. That means the poorer countries usually, but it goes, means also the poorer areas of the richer countries, which are the peripheral areas of Britain, which would be the north of England and uh, and Wales. And those are the places that voted for Brexit most strongly, the places with the most blue plaques saying this motorway, this bridge, whatever was built. But but that's my point. That's my point. A, A bridge is a utility. It's an absolute and the, utility. And also those and you places with a few immigrants. Again, absolutely, right? But if blue plaques and were on schools, something which is at the emotionally at the heart of any community, no one then could turn around and actually say, what has the EU ever done for us? And that's true. But we, I mentioned competencies earlier, yes. and that's outside and, uh, competencies. Absolutely, it is outside. It, it, it is I, outside. I take, I take a point, yeah. yes. Um, and and then kind of going back to kind of the the EU because we've painted, or at least um, you've painted, and I've kind of gone along with it, a very compelling case for economic integration and the fact mm-hmm. that whether we want to admit it or not, Britain is locked in to this European system of economic growth. Just we are mm-hmm. um, no. No manufacturer of any size is truly national anymore. They might have their headquarters uh, nominated as somewhere for tax or historical or emotional reasons, but actually they're they're not truly national uh, manufacturers anymore, full stop. Mm -hmm. And even if it's Walker's Crisps, which are made in Leicester, they have EU standards that they abide by to make those crisps. Because you know what? British expats in Marbella that want Walker's mm. crisps. So Walker's <laughs> crisps will abide by European standards because they need to export them. Full stop. All right? Yes. So we painted this picture, which I actually now understand. If I am a Brexiteer, and I think it's a wrong-headed way of looking at the world, looking at the 21st century to try and cleave yourself off. But you could actually say, we are locked into this thing. How can we get out? There is, there is the economic entanglement of our economy. But say if I just want to get out, right? There is no easy mechanism. And, I, and I, that think, is I, think, a, I think Elon Musk, I think Elon Musk is building a very large rocket. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, I don't think you can take uh, sixty-five million people to Mars anytime soon. So uh, no, no, no. But the I, I think the um, let me give you an analogy. Okay, if you can picture yourself uh, going down a winding country road somewhere in a rural area, and you see. I'm picturing Donegal right now. It's something like Donegal. And you see a a, a sign hand-painted and it's slightly rickety and uh, it's not very neat and it says homemade jam for sale. Mm -hmm. You might be well attracted to that and it seems something nice uh, for sale. 
if you were do, going down the same place and you say, saw the same sign, a little bit rickety, hand-painted, and said homemade laptops for sale, you probably wouldn't <laughs> be as trusting of the product. And the reality is that the scale that is needed to make internationally traded products now is enormous. You know how many, you, I don't know if you have a scanner for scanning documents. Uh, I, I use my iPhone, but 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 I hear you. But you know the thing. You you know how many uh, uh, countries in the world make scanners? One, Taiwan. Taiwan is the only country on earth where scanners oh, wow. are manufactured. Uh, they're actually quite technically quite difficult to manufacture, but this Taiwanese have got it right, and they've cornered that particular market. And everywhere in the world that has a scanner gets them from gets it from Taiwan, and. The, the the thinking behind that the reason the reason why that's happening is because we humans as a race know more and more about less and less we are in order to have our global economy that gives us the products that we want we have to specialize and that specialism means that fewer and fewer people are making more and more specialized products and there are much more specialisms out there now, you could be North Korea and you could say, we'll make our own iPhones. But, but you know, it, these products, they're just, it's actually the individual components are made in different countries because different places are specialist in different ones. But that almost sounded to me like uh, an argument for economic nationalism. You know, if you say, well, Taiwan are number one and we're the only place on planet Earth that makes scanners, I can see mm. Nigel Farage and Daniel Hannan saying, there you go, right? We'll just not carve out our own little uh, British nook here and it will be uh, ball bearings or it will be the number one in the world at ball bearings and everyone will come to Britain for ball bearings and we'll be fine. Royfield, Roy, Roy you're, you're in the States and the issue with that is there's a perfect American saying for this, which is that's like throwing away a dime in the hope that you're going to find a quarter. Well, that, that's there Brexit is, uh, yes, all over. There, there is nothing in throwing away a dime that improves your chances of finding a quarter. And there's nothing in Brexit that makes it more difficult for them to do that, to specialise, be it in ball right. bearings or All anything right. else. Well, you and I are singing from the same hymn sheet, but I've got to try mm -hmm. and play devil's advocate at, at mm -hmm. times here. Here's me again in devil's advocate mode. Surely, really what's done for um, the EU in terms of the eyes of many people in Britain, anti-EU sentiment is rising in France. Um, if you, I'm not sure about that. Well, the, the Front National are popular. And I did see a poll some time ago, and it said that anti-EU sentiment in France is at the highest it's ever been since records started. And it was, let's say, 40%, right? Don't quote me on, on the actual figure, but fun, the fundamental point of what I'm making is fact. Anti-EU sentiment is the highest it's ever been in Italy. There is no question of that, um, mm -hmm. though the two uh, parties in government are not pushing for any kind of referendum to leave. But they are, but they are eurosceptic. Mm -hmm. um, Anti-EU sentiment is high in Hungary, Poland, and that's just off the top of my head. And that's before we talk about mm -hmm. record highs of European dissatisfaction in Sweden, Denmark, Holland. How, how is the federal government polling in the US in various states? Well. America has always had a rather peculiar 
relationship to the federal government and it's always seen as being evil and the place where venal politicians go to be venal uh so rates of approval for congress i think something like 12 percent seven percent something like that um Mm -hmm. so there are historic lows so there is a movement throughout the western world which is anti anti big government okay and in the u.s yes anti-Washington, you know, Trump has said he's going to come and drain the swamp, which is utter hogwash and bunkum. We know that. But there's a populist vein of that. And there's been a populist vein of being saying that all things that are evil come out of Brussels in, in, in British politics for 20, 30 years, definitely since the 1980s. Mm-hmm. But surely one of the reasons why this has kind of come about is because European enlargement happened too fast and maybe too soon, that the bedrock countries of the European Union, and let's be honest about it, the countries that write the checks, which is primarily Germany, Mm-hmm. As a way of war guilt, we all know the reasons why Germans write the check. Well, no, these no, well, no, no. I, I don't think that's correct. These okay, uh, but, but, okay, contributions but, but, are very uh, carefully calculated. On no, 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 well no, 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 no. They are, criteria. they are, they are. But Germany historically has been very quiet. Historically, has been very quiet about uh, seeing seeing to ruffle European feathers around disbursements etc now that is starting to change and it's creating some kind of friction you know so we had uh, the free democrats within eastern germany saying you know no 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 uh, we're kind of getting a bit fed up with this but my point is though that the the richer countries that historically have written the check mm-hmm. were comfortable writing the checks for cultures and for countries that they saw as being on a relative par. What you had with Romania, Bulgaria, Slovakia, etc. coming into the fold were countries that are, if you took a concentric ring and you said, here is the Western European core, and and we talked about this at the very start of our conversation, talked about um, Ireland and Britain being culturally very similar. There are differences... Mm -hmm. But you know what? You can go from one country to another almost seamlessly culturally, not even just physically, mm-hmm. but culturally you can. That though Germans speak Germans and British people speak, speak British, you can kind of make that as well. It's not as seamless as going from Ireland. There are going to be more cultural differences. But to go from Germany to Romania culturally is a bigger leap again. And, and, and that is, you would? Yeah, I, I, it is and, a and, 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 leap. And, and it's that is at the heart of the reason why in the, in the 2000s we've had this large increase of, Europe, of EU membership and then here we are 15 years after that where we are feeling some pushback. And the tip of the spear is non-white immigration. So we've had the Im- the immigrants from Syria, and then if you're Italian, you, you are concerned or you have noticed um, African migrants, black African mi- migrants come through, I forget the name of that small uh, Italian island, uh, but, you know, wash up on your shores quite literally. But that is just the tip of the spear that actually... What the Italians and what the Germans are now saying and what some French people are saying is, you know what, 
those Bulgarians, those Romanians, etc., not quite like us. They're not quite as economically developed as us. We don't want to be spending our money that way. It is not by accident that it was the wave of Polish migration into the UK which kind of reignited the strength of the the UKIP party within the UK. Accession. I, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I oh, think that UKIP successfully confused. You could you could successfully confused and and uh, I've been looking at them recently. Created advertisements suggesting that uh, migration from Syria and Iraq no, no, was in some way connected with the EU, which no, 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 is no, just no, factually no, untrue. And but that was the. But we're talking the, about. But we're talking about two different things. We're talking about two different things, though. You, you're talking about the EU referendum. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about maybe the last uh, general election within within the UK. But I'm going back to the, the rise of UKIP can be put down to the accession of Poland, Hungary, etc. Be- there was a rise in the British press in the early 2000s when Tony Blair said, you know what, we these countries are going to uh, join on whatever date that they join. And I forget exactly the year, 2002, 2003. I, I forget exactly mm-hmm. the year and I forget the date. But all Western European countries basically said there's going to be a five-year moratorium on Polish workers, Czech workers coming into those countries. Britain said, ah, let them come. Mm -hmm. You can absolutely chart the rise of UKIP to the early 2000s with the Daily Mail, Daily Express running campaign saying we're being flooded, swamped by these uh, European migrants. I heard a really interesting program, which I've never forgotten um, on Radio 4. Round about that time, a British woman from Slough said, I was in Tesco's and over the tannoy, they gave out an announcement in Polish and she said, what country am I in? Mm -hmm. And the whole point of the program was to highlight the fact that I think the population of Slough had gone up by 15, 12 to 15% in 18 months exclusively because of Eastern European migration and the strains that that put on local services, on schools. It's a case of we need more schools. We need more places within schools. I, I hear what you're saying, but I, I don't think that's strictly true. And I think that... If things had been done in a different way, uh, clearly there might have been some different outcomes. But I think that the real thing that has caused that alienation is people essentially not being able to make any progress. People whose kids will never be able to afford a house as nice as they grew up in. People whose parents had good steady jobs who are now in precarious employment and don't see any way out of it. I, 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 I really don't I, think William, that there's... That, I, that, I, I agree that with you. If, that if those problems didn't exist, nobody would care about whether there was an announcement in Tesco's in Polish. You're wrong and right. And you are right to say that there are other reasons why people vote in the UK voted to Brexit. And actually economic security and people feeling that the outcome for their for themselves wasn't the same as it was for their parents 
and and their children are going to have a, wor- a worse outcome. It's kind of nothing to do with the EU per se, but to do with a global economic trends. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, there was a post-war boom from the Second World War, which approximately ended in the early 70s. And people who came to the majority within that period, who are starting now to retire, are retiring with with benefits, which uh, my generation, possibly your generation, will probably never get. It's a golden mm-hmm. generation economically, full stop. And that's got nothing to do with the EU, and that's to do with global capitalism, right? So there is that. But I'm telling you, as somebody who was British, English, a Brummie, I can remember um when uh the accession of poland and those eastern european countries happened and i know that romania bulgaria was like another five years afterwards four or five years afterwards mm-hmm. when that happened the right-wing press did run scare stories absolutely did interesting incident happened to me um when i was walking down westbourne grove it's approximately 2002 2003 so it's, it, it it has happened and the one of the first reasons that you knew that something physically had changed was because you saw roma in in london mm-hmm. and they were doing and they were squeegeeing uh people's cars etc and, and begging and again you can go and Google this. You look at the Daily Mail and Roma gypsy scare stories start at the accession of Poland mm-hmm. and, and those Eastern European countries. So what, so what happened to me, I'm walking down the road and I come wrapped up in black skin. I see myself as English, but I also appreciate that many, uh, let's say, indigenous English people will, will see me as, as other. Mm-hmm. Unless I put on a shirt and play for England and whatever. Not everybody, but some. I wouldn't put a percentage on it, but I'm not saying it's 70%. But, you know, some. Mm -hmm. Could be 30%. We'll say you could never be English. Anyway, I'm walking down the road. And uh, a woman of Roma appearance, shall we say, came up to me Mm -hmm. and started begging. A, A guy in his white van got out of his van and told her, it's my podcast, so I can say, fuck off, you smelly gypsy fuck off leave our people alone and he turned to me said are you all right mate and i went i can fight my own battles i'm fine and he got back in his van and drove off now there were so many things happening in that exchange i'm british i'm english he was defending me right against this against this uh interloper this this invasive force of of something culturally which he was not happy with. This this woman's skin was brown, mine was black. Mm-hmm. She was the problem, not me. And there was a wave of this xenophobia of which gypsies, Roma people were used as the blunt instrument, and it starts with the accession. And if you look at the rise of UKIP in terms of getting council seats within the UK, and then 10 years afterwards, then um, scrambling uh, one or two um, constituency uh, places in Parliament, sorry, (laughs) it starts then. Nobody took UKIP seriously on the British political mainstream all the way through the latter years of Blair and then Brown. It was only at the accession of Cameron 
then you realise that it started to create problems for the Tory party and then really UKIP and Nigel Farage, you know, those kind of people realised that UKIP wasn't just this total fringe party that, you know, wasn't going to go away anytime soon. And I've said this time and time again, people in the UK moan on the right and the left about the oxygen that Nigel Farage actually gets within the UK uh, media. As far as I'm concerned, he is wrongly, for all the wrong reasons, but the most influential British politician of the since Thatcher. This mm-hmm. man is single-handedly, I don't think we're actually going to leave the European Union. Not in any way which he'll be happy with, but single-handedly has wrecked UK politics. He's an incredibly clever, smart man. I'm going to say he's clever, he's smart. He's incredibly passionate about... Uh, the theory of sovereignty, and he believes it inherently. And he, and and to him, to hell with the economic consequences, which I know you and I have talked very in depth about about the the economic reasons why it just makes sense to continue this. But you know, it has to be said. Let's go back to a point um, I, I made ten minutes ago. I mm-hmm. do slightly understand the frustration with Brexiteers looking at this and just saying. Okay, but say if I want to get out, why why can't we just kind of get out, you know? And I, I, I and I do understand that frustration. I don't live in that world where it's an issue for me, but I, I actually do understand. If I want to get out of this club, why can't I just leave the club? I do understand that. But William Campbell, mm-hmm. um, I've had over an hour of your time, sir, and I'm going to put it to you for some closing comments because our remit of this show has changed somewhat. I thought we were going to talk about really this much more from an Irish perspective, but you're a man who not only wears an Irish hat, you obviously wear a European hat and you're a committed European. You're in Germany right now and Mm. you're versed with all aspects of the European project. So I'm going to turn the mic over to you, sir, for some closing comments about maybe where you see this whole mess ending up not just for Britain, but also for the European project. And then we're going to have to say goodbye, but I'm going to have to have you on again because we're going to have to plot the machinations of British politics and how it responds to Brexit. And I think you'd be an excellent person to call on uh, for a bit of commentary. So let's have some uh, closing comments and uh, and then we can say toodaloo. Or should it be Alvina saying if you're in Germany? Possibly, possibly. I, I think we're in a very serious situation and we're in a very unstable situation. It's very difficult to work out what's what's going to happen. Um, there is a distinct possibility that because, and as you said before, there are a variety of different options of Britain having a, a spectrum of different levels of integration with the EU available. But in the UK Parliament there isn't a majority for any of them, but the least favoured option is essentially crashing out of the EU and having no continuing deal, no treaty to say that uh, our aeroplanes can fly to your country and so forth. And that's easily the least favoured option, but it's the one that could happen because it's the default one. If they don't agree on a different position, then that's what happens. And I am very concerned with that. And the chances of a no deal exit from the European Union have definitely gone up since yesterday. And then actually Mm -hmm. with 
the rebuffing of the checkers deal Theresa May is literally boxed into a corner. She has uh, Europe, who she wants to have some some kind of deal with, saying no. She has at least a quarter of her MPs in Parliament who are against the Czechos deal anyway, who are going to say, I told you so. If you are wavering um, between um, a no deal and uh, some kind of uh, Brexit, you can see that the right-wing press in the, U- in, in the UK is going to say, I told you, they show us no respect, they don't care, or whatever. So you, you're gonna, you can see how those MPs will be swept along with that tide. This is all to play for the Labour Party now, that if the Labour Party comes out and very clearly says, we need to still engage with Europe in a meaningful way because of the economic morass that w- will be delivered to the country if we crash out... The Labour Party is a whole other hot mess. Well, the Labour Party let's, is let's a hot do, mess. Let's leave that to another day. Labour Party is a hot mess because uh, Jeremy Corbyn um, has barely hides his Euroscepticism himself. However, does he want to be the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom? That's the thing. He has the opportunities literally within his hands to uh, bring down this government if, if he wants to. And if he wants to listen to the vast, vast, vast majority of Labour members, of the unions, of British industry, and of people who've actually sat down and seriously thought about this issue, not from an emotional point of view, but from a practical point of view, which is where you and I did for about the first 45 minutes, where we looked at the practicalities, or at least you explained the practicalities of alignment of products and services, etc. But William Campbell, this has been absolutely fantastic. The next time you come on the show, I promise I'll actually say a little bit more, sir. But um, I was okay. I was so enthralled with your detailed analysis uh, of, of the whole situation. So I just thought, let, let you run. But just before you go, why don't you tell people about your podcast and where they can find you on social media? Challenging Opinions, a uh, very simple name of the podcast and challengingopinions.com. You can find the podcast, you can find the social media and everything. And of course, folks, you've been listening to Mid-Atlantic. Now, this week has been an interesting week on Mid-Atlantic because uh, I've recorded four Mid-Atlantic shows. I've only put out the one. And um, on Wednesday, you had Amanda Marcotte from Salon and Alice Thwaite from the Echo Chamber Club do our normal Mid-Atlantic show where we have a pundit in the US and a pundit in the UK talking about transatlantic kind of politics and had the biggest response to that show that I've had in a long time because quite simply I wasn't on it for half of it my, my, my audio went down so thank you for everybody that emailed in and said it's much better when you're not on it Royfield I do actually agree they were brilliant and then talking about the meeting movement and Monica Lewinsky etc Amanda and Alice will be back again soon please write us a review on a podcatcher of your choice preferably itunes but you know knock yourself out whatever podcasting service you use please write us a review on that we'll see you all again soon but just before i go quickly i've just got to say that we are mid-atlantic show on twitter that i'm rubbish at it and you can email me at royfield at gmail.com um next week you will be getting not one not two but three mid-atlantic shows bye-bye take care
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.